Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. I'm going to ask you if you'd stand, please, for the reading of God's Word. Reading out of Luke, chapter 2. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them unto heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem, see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste, found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they'd seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at all those things that were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned to their hillside, glorifying and praising God for all things they'd heard and seen as it was told them. Father, I pray your anointing upon your word and that your spirit would work to solidify it and establish it within our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Last week we talked about the, the beginning of this conversation of, of seeking a savior. And we talked about Simeon, this really old guy who had been told he would not die until he saw the Messiah, until he t- saw Israel's salvation. And there was a priestess named Anna uh, who had some of the same input. So they're lurking around the baby dedications and um, on a regular basis. And one moment of time, Jesus is being dedicated as a child, and it stirs in the spirit of Simeon, and he takes hold of the child, and he's aware that the Messiah has come, that it's been fulfilled now. Anna has the same understanding. And he makes a statement at that time about, about how this child's coming is going to cause the rise and fall of many within Israel. And we talked about the idea that in in times past, the church would have followed something of a calendar and now would have been something called Advent, where beginning even last week or, or so before that would have been a time of preparing for Christmas, celebrating Christmas, and then a week or two after that even continuing the, the celebration. And so instead of the one day that we all rapidly run up to and then, you know, the idea that, wait a minute, let's take now and the next few weeks, let's make this a deeper, richer experience of expectation building up towards that time. And so as we talked about that and the idea of expectant, 
Today, the second out of three of these, I want to talk to you about enraptured. And as we go into this conversation today, I want to ask you to be curious. I need you today in this conversation to be curious. See, oftentimes we get caught in patterns and in traditions, and we don't ask questions. We don't explore, and we skim over the surface of things. Years ago, there was a couple that used to sit over in this area here, and um, Willie was an old German guy and, and kind of kind of funny. He was just an outgoing kind of guy. Hilda had an oxygen tank and kind of a darker kind of person. And I just took them at face value as people who were older than me and therefore irrelevant. Yeah, and now I'm older. I get it. Okay. <laughs> but not irrelevant. Um, and then something he said one time in a gathering made me probe further and ask questions. And I saw him one time with his sleeve opened and saw the tattoo. And as I probed deeper, realized that Willie was a Jewish person who had survived the Nazis, he and his wife. And while Hilda, I don't think, ever quite forgave that, somewhere in the process, Willie had become a follower of Christ and had found resolution in his life that way. That and other things have caused me to ask questions, to probe. And so one of the things that I'd raise up today as we look at this is, why shepherds? I mean, we're so used to their presence in these times that we never ask the question. I mean, there's angels and there's wise men and there's shepherds. They're just part of the crew. But why? Why of all the different grouping of people that were, could have been gathered there, why didn't the angels show up to a bunch of, of people in the midst of doing pottery? Or uh, to a bunch of priests, that would have been great, a bunch of priests trailing on down to the manger and kind of blessing the moment. Or why not some soldiers, something with authority and something that would have some guts to it? Why, why shepherds? Think about that. Why? Well, they just did. They always have. They always... But why? Shepherding is considered not the oldest profession, but one of the oldest ones. And it has been around, according to some of the history, for over 5,000 years. Sheep were kept for their milk, for their meat, and um, especially their wool, of course. Um, It would have originally been a family thing, and for many centuries it was just that. It was a family-type event that would take place. Uh, if we read in the, in the Old Testament, we find various elements of shepherds. Of course, one of the classics of those would have been David, the psalmist and the eventual king and the, the, the one who would have been in the line you know, of Jesus. In fact, this idea of, of shepherding hits so deeply into um, David's soul that he writes the 23rd Psalm that we read. Because as he's taking care of these shepherds, or sheep, rather, and he's, as he's handling them and all, he begins to realize, well, this is a little bit like how God probably views me. I'm chasing this stupid little creature all over the place, trying to manage this dumb little sheep, and he probably views me that way. And there's all these animals that could threaten and, and hurt my sheep, and I protect them from that. And in the same way, he protects me. And, and maybe the isolation of it, whatever it is, but the classic, the Lord is my shepherd. 
he says, as he's sitting on the hillside alone. Oftentimes it was the youngest of the family, one who, who could be spared because they weren't going to inherit any land for the most part. They were the, the most expendable. And so they're out on the hillside, they're there alone, and they're supposed to watch over these sheep. And the isolation of it, it works in his head. The Lord is my shepherd. Oh, if he was my shepherd, I, I would not want he, he's really good. He gets me by the green pastures where the good stuff is. He leads me by the still waters, not the crazy stuff. He's not a stupid shepherd where you can lose a sheep in the, in the rapids. And he restores my soul, leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, just like these stupid sheep, they don't have a clue. They don't fear, even though there's death all around them, because they're sheep. I, I will fear no evil, for you're with me. You're present. The same way with these sheep. They don't have to think twice. I'm handling it for them. Your rod and your staff, he says, they comfort me. We think those are the two things are the same, but they're not. The rod and the staff were actually two different elements. The one, the rod, was just as you see there, a, a kind of a blunt club-type device. They would use this to defend the animal from attack, sometimes to prod them forward in different ways. The staff was used sometimes with a slight crook on the end, sometimes to draw them in or to guide in some fashion or other. Later on, the, the, the uh, um, uh, rod took on different meaning in the Middle East because it was viewed as a way of watching over the sheep and guiding them in authority. Um, certain uh, military and political figures took it, and, and the scepter that you see that kings and queens, even in the West, hold today is an extension of the rod. It's rooted in that idea that the king is the shepherd of his people and the protector and the authority, but it roots back to the idea of the shepherd. Later, when the Mosaic Law comes into play, and sheep are dedicated the temple for slaughter, for sacrifice. The shepherds would use that rod to count the sheep as they'd pass through a narrow enclosure. But then when it came time for the calling, they would dip it in a colored um, mix of some type. And every tenth sheep as a tithe, every tenth sheep they would touch on the head as it went past. And that one with the mark on it was set for sacrifice for being dedicated um, to the Lord. As I said, this was generally a family thing. It was generally a thing of isolation. Um, it was not only the rod and the staff. They would also have oftentimes a sling where David came in with that. It was supposed to help you protect against the animals, but a lot of it I think was just kind of like a boy's BB gun. He's out there doing nothing, just plinking rocks, swimming at things, and it was just one of the things they had. There were several other things that they would have carried with them, but these were the main things. And so, originally, shepherding is a family event carried by a son within that family to provide for the family, and they were deeply invested in it. It had linkages to things that were Biblical in nature or, or pointing towards this provisioning. When we get to the New Testament time period, though, it had begun to change. 
from the family-oriented event that it was to a much more industrialized, commercialized process. Now you had professional shepherds. They were hired for pay as individuals or as a group. In many ways, they were the early cowboys of the Middle East. These were men that were hirelings, and so they would come in and take care of it for a price. However, their reputation was not good because they would constantly be traveling around and because they were just for hire, they were known in one writing to have a confusing tendency of confusing thine with mine. In other words, they would steal. They would take things. They were not terribly dependable. They had a level of unreliability. As a result, in the Jewish courts, in the time that we're talking about, these individuals could not testify in court. The opinion of the population was that low that their judgment and their statements couldn't be trusted. So you've moved from this family-type event to this commercialized process of a shepherd and larger flocks. And the difference between those were so sharp, which is one of the reasons why Jesus, who uses this as an illustration for himself, has to make the clarification in John chapter 10 to say this. Not that I am the shepherd, but I am the what? Good shepherd. Why? Because most of them weren't good. So if I'm going to say I'm the shepherd, oh, yeah, right. No, I, no you're not, I am the good shepherd. I'm back to the original roots of this where it's family and where there's provision and where there's care and there's concern and there's investment and there's bravery and there's commitment. So he says, I am the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. You know, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand, one of those commercialized cowboys, and not a shepherd who doesn't own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep, and he flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus uses this imagery of of shepherding to come back to the idea of what it meant to be a shepherd. He has to say this because it's changed in this time period to someone who has the title but doesn't have the heart that won't lay his life down. He makes the delineation due to the change. I hadn't thought about this passage for a long time. And as I was processing this for today, it it was brought vivid to my mind because my father used to, this is one of four passages probably, that he really particularly would emphasize and and talk about at different times. I remember one time particularly vivid uh, in this church when I was on staff. And there was some meeting, I don't know if it was a members meeting, board meeting, whatever else. There was some conversation. Someone spoke up and said, well, we need to hire a pastor or hire this new staff. And he immediately bristled and reacted more intensely. He's a pretty mild person usually. He says, we do not hire pastors in this church. The hirelings run away when the wolves come. We call pastors. And I'm like, oh, okay. I guess I know what I'm supposed to be doing now and how he perceived that. 
And I've seen this act out. I've seen increasingly those who are in the realm of pastoring who it's strictly about a hiring issue and not a concern for people. And I've seen those that have a concern for people. Jesus used this in a pastoral sense. David had a very identity both to himself and who God was to him in it. The prophet Isaiah talks about Messiah, Jesus himself, in Isaiah chapter 40. It says, like a shepherd, he tends his flock. He gathers the lambs in his arms, carries them close to his heart, and gently leads the mother sheep. There's David's identification. There's Jesus' identification. The change from the family structure to now this professional group that has to be called out. And, 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 and so you now have a group of shepherds in this time period who are not seeking a savior but a paycheck. There aren't many people watching out for a family element. They're people that are just professionals, a little rough, uh, unseemly. They're sitting on this hillside and suddenly heaven breaks in. Now, if you go to Israel, they will show you a field outside Bethlehem that is the traditional place where where the shepherds were keeping watch. And I'm sure that it is within 100 miles probably of the actual site. I, I don't know how they would sort this over time. But it is interesting to go to that place and to stand on the edges of it and to see Bethlehem nearby and to imagine with the topography, which would be typical, and the fauna and the, the growth of what it would have been like, you get some sense of it. And we approach this holiday season with even a more limited sense. We get this sense for some reason that there are these saintly shepherds in pressed robes with perfect little crooks in their hands and they're innocent and sweet and they're always accompanied by a little shepherd boy maybe playing a drum <laughs> and, and complaining, you know, come, they told me, you know. <laughs> and these saintly pristine, godly men in procession, two, maybe three, and the little boy, tap, 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 and they come on down. No more than that because it crowds the scene out. And, and it's, it's so sweet, and we never ask why. And when we delve deeper, we realize they weren't that innocent. As we delve deeper, we realize that these were men who were for hire. These were men who were crude and rude. And they're actually out in their field and they're not in pressed robes and, and they're not being sweet. They're, 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 they're just hanging out there and, and, and maybe they're gambling. Maybe they're drinking. Maybe they're telling lewd stories. And in the middle of while they're doing that, suddenly an angel bursts into the scene and that's always the same. The angel always says, don't be afraid and everyone's always terrified. Every time. And the reason why is this. The angel was not like Clarence in It's a Wonderful Life, which I understand they're trying to cancel that television program. I don't get why. Um, it, it's not like, like, like uh, you know, Michael Landon or whoever else you want to try to pull out from past times. Angels were otherworldly. They were terrifying they were creatures that, that, that expanded beyond space and time. And when one showed up, it terrified, especially if you'd been drinking, telling lewd stories, and gambling <laughs> on a hillside. Whoa. 
whatever I had, I'm not having that one again. <laughs> and, and in the midst of this, the angel's sitting here and saying, don't be afraid, there's going to be good times, right, Joyce? And, and if that wasn't bad enough for one angel popping up, suddenly when he's finished talking, suddenly it says that there was a multitude of angels. The numbers there are in the thousands of angels. If one didn't cause us to, to freak out and, and, and to wet our loincloth, then what is going to be several thousands of them? And they're suddenly bursting on the scene and they begin to sing. And they're singing powerfully and, and amazing. This is the most incredible concert that has ever been done in the history of mankind. There is nothing like it. It's you too, the Rolling Stones and the, the Tabernacle Choir all rolled into one with all the production values off the charts. It's powerful. It's overwhelming. It's delightful. It's enrapturing. Enrapture means to be carried away with joy and delight, to be swept up in a moment of time. And so these men of this dour profession, that while it had a history that was rooted in, in an archetype of Jesus and of David and pointing towards God himself, to them had become just this profession and this lowly thing they're suddenly burst upon and they're encountering this moment that overcomes their senses. It was phenomenal. It was overwhelming. It was incredible. They talk about peace on earth. They talk about the idea of, 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 of glory and, and the idea of peace even that these guys had, meaning even the pagans of the first century sensed the need for peace and a savior. And let us be clear today, we do not need another reformer or another committee or another politician. We do not need another president or another governor or another mayor in this country. We need a savior. Desperately, we need a savior. Epictetus, a first century pagan writer, expressed this, quote, while the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, grief, envy, he cannot give peace of heart for which man yearns far more than even outward peace. And so these men experience this incredible event and suddenly they're thrust into something as simple as they are. God takes those things that are foolish and he uses them to affect great things. These shepherds then go from there with haste and they go to find the baby. And one writer says, uh, that's not tuned into this, I think, too well, is sitting here saying, how disturbing and almost offensive it must have been for the shepherds to have come and to find this baby lying in a manger in this cavern-type setting with the things. It's amazing that they overcame the shock of that to actually come and worship. And I'm sitting here going, are you for real? These guys lived in this kind of environment. They would have been thrown off and terrified by, by palaces and by, by, by all the flash of that. But in this case, they're coming to their home territory. Animals were their thing. It was easy for them. God brings us to a point and meets us where we're at. 
You see, Simeon and the other ones were expecting Jesus. They were spiritually tuned. These guys weren't. They had no awareness at all. And yet God broke into their world, engaged them. Simeon said that his coming, Jesus, would be the, 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 the fall of many. Yes, the religiously righteous would fall. But those who thought they had no chance at all, he said, those will rise. These were men who thought they had no chance at all. These were the men who lived on the hillside. These were the men who, who never knew a righteous moment in their life. And suddenly they're engaging heaven and being drawn in to see the Messiah. It was something that must have shattered their lives. It says later that they left there praising God, maybe the first time ever in their life that they'd used certain phrases without a blasphemous twist behind it. Something changed in them. They became like what is spoken in Corinthians about this treasure that all of us who are followers of Christ have, this treasure of knowing God in these earthen jars. The glory is not in who we are. It's in who is within us. It is within knowing the presence of God. And so these men now have that. And they walk forward. He uses the simple things and transforms them. So after we've walked through all of this, stepping through everything, you stop to ask yourself, why shepherds? I mean, okay, so it's linked with Jesus and, and an identity there and with, and with David and, and there's all their features of that. I get that a bit and there's some sacrificial, but why shepherds? Well, there's a reason why and we'll take this one step further now this morning as we wrap because especially these shepherds. See, I said how things had gotten commercialized and industrialized off the family plan. There was nothing more industrialized or commercialized in regards to shepherding than the temple in Jerusalem. They went through massive numbers of sheep that would be sacrificed. These sheep gave their lives as a way of, 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 of sacrificing themselves for, for the sins of the people. And the place that the temple would have drawn their sheep from was Bethlehem and its surrounding area. These were the men that in all probability would have taken their rod, dipped it in a colored material, and as at one time during the year would have passed through, would have touched every tenth one and marked it for death. And it would have been sent up to the temple for sacrifice. These are the men who would have protected and cared for the lambs used in temple sacrifice. And so it's pretty incredible if you look at it to realize that the shepherds who looked after these temple lambs were the very first to see the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That these men who were so steeped in a bloody expression of that, so steeped and conscious of their own sin, of their own darkness and of their own circumstances, would have been the one of all people, not soldiers, not priests, not potters, not anyone else, but they were the ones that are drawn into the moment of Jesus' birth. They weren't expectant. They weren't spiritually tuned at all. They're just doing their job. 
never imagining for a moment that they could encounter God. This morning, perhaps you came here today with no expectation other than to satisfy the person who asked you to come or just to kind of get into the holiday tradition or maybe just whatever the purpose may be. But is it possible that this morning, without you even being aware that God's brought you to this moment to to have you have an encounter with him, to have you realize that it doesn't matter what your background, what your circumstances, you don't see yourself as spiritually tuned, whatever. That doesn't matter. What matters is this. When God shows up, do you respond? Or you just run in fear and hide? For these shepherds, for everything else that they were faulted at, they stood their ground. They listened. Most amazing concert ever. And then they responded. And when everything was said and done, these men who blasphemed and cheated and lied to everything else walk away praising God. Years back when Riverdance, the, the phenomenon, uh, broke loose, um, my wife and I had our first son. He was under two years of age. And once a kid hits two, unless it's changed, um, you could have them fly with you for free. They'd sit on your lap, uh, international. So we thought, well, let's just save some cash before we, you know, he turns two. So we went over to uh, England and to Ireland. He was like 22 months or something at the time. And as we were in Dublin, we were at this hotel that was right near um, uh, Grafton Street. And right at the end of Grafton Street is a theater. I think it's called the Abbey Theater. And we saw advertised this musical, this dance musical extravaganza. Now, my wife loves shows like this. I enjoy them too. She, she did stuff in college this way and one of her um, partners that she used to work with in college actually was the original Blue Man Group guy. And, um, and so we're like, this will be great. Let's go and see this. Well, it's dance though and music and i like, who knows? For all I know, it's going to get really weird. We got this underage two-year-old. I'm going to warp the kid for life, you know? And so we passed on it. The original river dance. Didn't know. Ten years later, we happen to be back there again. And now we have our, our nine-year-old and our 12-year-old. Initially enough, they're now doing a 10-year revival of the thing. They're doing the, the 10-year anniversary. And they had all the best from around the world coming in in the same theater. They're, they're doing this incredible presentation. And I still have never seen it. So we're saying, okay, they're 9 and 12. They're boys. They're 9 and 12. Are they going, how are they going to handle this? At least we're concerned they probably won't get warped out, and if they are, we can take them away. But we knew enough about the musical, and it was going, okay. So we bring them along, we go into the place, and the music begins. And I'm watching the guys. From the moment of the first note till the time it ended, it was like, I mean, they were riveted. It was the most powerful expression of music and production they had ever experienced. It was incredible, and I was so thrilled to see them engage that afterwards. Two of the actors were American actors playing some of the American music parts, and and we had a chance to talk to them afterwards. And just the experience of having that and taking it in, and I know it marked them even to this day. These guys experienced something 
It injected into their world and changed the trajectory of their lives. This morning, and I did not ask the first service this, but I'm asking you, where are you at in relationship to God? Are you approaching this whole time period as just a casual type of process without asking any questions of any type? We've just broken out to you the difference and the importance of what the shepherds meant and how that was and the links to that. But I feel like this morning for someone in this room, it has specific impact that God's using this moment to penetrate your heart and your mind in a way that you wouldn't have expected here today. These men handled the sheep that were going to be sacrificed and they were clueless. God breaks in in that moment and changes everything for them. And somewhere in the midst of that, they had to realize that Jesus was going to be the sheep that was going to be sacrificed for all time. No more sacrifices. That's what we believe as Christians. The song that was sung earlier even, that he's that one sacrifice, no more again. And it will cause the fall, but also the rise of many. And this morning, in this moment of time, this could be your moment of rise. So before we go anywhere further in this conversation today, before we complete any other process, I'm going to ask if you bow your heads with me this morning. And I'm going to ask you to seriously contemplate your relationship with God. Maybe you've been one of those that's been spiritually arrogant, and this is your time to be brought down a peg. Maybe you've been one of those that has felt like those shepherds that nothing could ever penetrate. But this morning, God has a message for you. The angels are here. They're here, and the song's being played. And so I ask you this morning to respond to God. I ask if there's anyone here in this gathering that this morning you want to respond to God and seek his salvation. That if that's you, and you want to repent of your sin, and you want to pursue the things of God and accept forgiveness today by his work on the cross, if that's you, then I'm going to ask you to simply raise a hand with no one looking around and do that now, wherever you're at. Okay. Anyone else? We'll wait a second longer. Just looking on the ground floor. Anybody else? Nobody looking around. Just up in the balcony quickly, anybody? Okay. Father, I pray right now for these eight or ten individuals who have responded to you this morning. And I pray, Lord, that in whatever field that they stand on today of isolation and darkness, that your grace and your light would break in upon them. I pray, Lord, that as we go through this holiday season, that we'd ask questions, that we'd probe deeper beyond just the surface. And that, Lord, we would see you in the midst of this time. But I particularly would lift up these individuals, and I pray that, Lord, as they seek your face and repent of their sin, that you would express to them forgiveness, grace, wholeness, and healing. Even as you did for those shepherds centuries ago. Over the centuries, we have sanitized the Christmas story in such a degree and idealize it that it's out of touch for the common person. The lesson we learn from the shepherds is that it's very much accessible, that it's very much um, reachable for anyone. So 
Father, I pray for this season that, yes, we would be expectant. I do pray that we'd have a spiritual tuning to, to celebrate each day leading up to and beyond Christmas. I also pray, Lord, that we'd be open to those moments that you sovereignly break into our world and enrapture us, transport us with joy into your presence. And that that's accessible to anyone. To anyone. Regardless of anything that anyone's done. I pray, God, that we would renew, for those of us who are followers of yours, renew our lives before you in this season of time. Step back from the things that we've embraced that we shouldn't have embraced. And Lord, for those for the first time, perhaps even this morning, that have embraced you, that they would be empowered and strengthened and renewed, even as these shepherds were. And that the trajectory of their lives would be changed. Guide us in this season, we pray. Speak to us. Through your Holy Spirit, I ask, in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen.